I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be talking about the U.S.-Iran talks, the attempts to negotiate a new Iran deal, a return to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And we'll be doing that with Ryan Costello of the National Iranian American Council. This conversation was recorded on December 6th, It's important to note that because the talks between the U.S. and Iran in Vienna are continuing today after having been put on pause last Friday. I want to get right to the conversation, have to get this episode out as quickly as possible. But first, if I could, I would like to let you know about one of our sponsors, Holistic Therapy with Alexander Yu. Alexander Yu is a licensed California therapist who takes on an all-embracing and welcoming approach to helping clients with any number of issues, whether it be marriage and relationship related, gender, LGBTIQ, grief, trauma, PTSD. He also is a reverend, accepting of all forms of spiritual expression and always offers his patients the best possible experience he can provide. So if you're in the California area and looking for holistic therapy, you can do no better than contacting Alexander Yu by calling or texting 323-834-9828 or emailing Alexander directly at therapy at alexanderyoo.com. Alexander Yu, holistic therapist specializing in marriage and family therapy, California license number 102886. And with that being said, let's get right to the conversation with Ryan Costello of the National Iranian American Council on the latest round of talks between the United States and Iran. Welcome to Parallax Views, uh, courtesy of one of my favorite guests, uh, Dr. Asal Rod. She suggested I get Ryan Costello on the show. And Ryan, you're also a member, like Dr. Rod, of uh, NIAC, the National Iranian American Council. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about what you do at NIAC? Sure. Yeah, I am a policy director with the National Iranian American Council. I've uh, been with NIAC since 2013 when uh, the nuclear negotiations were were first uh, jumping off, and uh, you know, uh, through the the conclusion of those talks and the Trump maximum pressure, and now 
Biden uh, trying to trying to reverse the clock and, and get the deal back and all the other issues that the Iranian American community addresses, including the, the Muslim ban and so forth. So uh, great to be on, uh, you know, Dr. Rad spoke highly of this, so <laughs> eager to join. So with regards to where we're at right now with uh, U.S.-Iranian uh, relations, I mean, I, I'm looking at reports uh, about the talks in Vienna. What's your basic takeaway from the talks last week, which ended, I believe, on Friday, uh, attempting to you know, get us into a new Iran deal, a new uh, JCPOA? Right. Well, good question of where to start here. I, I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll dial it back a little bit to, to where Biden first took office, and then we'll get kind of build up to the seventh round. But uh, you know, Biden took office, you know, basically describing Trump's foreign policy approach as a disaster, maximum pressure, the reimposition of sanctions as having failed and advanced Iran's nuclear program, undermined regional security. And his pledge was, if Iran gets back into compliance, the U.S. will do the same. Uh, so it was a little bit of a kind of open-endedness there. It depended on Iran being willing to get back into compliance with its nuclear obligations, which it had gradually uh, shed, and then you know then the U.S. will come forward. So uh, you know coming into office, there is this uh, escalating standoff. Um, Israel in December assassinates Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, this uh, nuclear scientist who. Uh, led a lot of their nuclear work when it was described by the international community as a nuclear weapons program back around 2003. Uh, and that really prompts Iran's parliament to ratchet up uh, nuclear expansion, going to 20% uh, enrichment, uh, limiting inspector access, bringing online a bunch of advanced centrifuges, which enrich uranium. And, uh, you know, essentially things got off to a false start early. So, uh, Iran's nuclear program is expanding. Uh, the Biden administration has some vague language about who's supposed to move first. And so the talks don't go, really get going until April. And then there are six rounds of nuclear negotiations with uh, essentially the lame duck uh, Iranian administration and Hassan Rouhani. Uh, and they conclude the process right before Iran's presidential elections and without a deal, without a breakthrough without a return to the nuclear agreement struck under Obama. Uh, and then five months pass. Uh, the new hardline Iran administration takes office. Uh, Ibrahim Raisi uh, comes in and uh, essentially is in no rush to get back into the nuclear deal. And so the seventh round of talks, uh, which just transpired last week, was the first round under the Raisi administration. There are kind of big questions of, well, is he going to pick up the progress uh, from the prior six rounds, or is he going to toss them out? Uh, and so, you know, I think a lot of us coming into those talks after this long break had pretty much come to the realization that Raisi is going to take a pretty strident line in this first uh, round of talks. And... Uh, really try to extract as mu much uh, as there is to gain at the negotiating table by putting forward a, a very hardline demand. And, you know, perhaps they walk that back in, in subsequent rounds of talks. And that's essentially precisely what happened. Uh, at the beginning of the week, we had some, you know, favorable commentary that essentially uh, Raisi was going to pick up uh, where the prior uh, six rounds had left off. 
but by the end of the week, uh, the draft proposals that Iran had put forward uh, essentially walked back a lot of the text that had been negotiated in the earlier six rounds. Uh, so now U.S. officials are, you know, essentially really ratcheting up the rhetorical pressure and, and making it appear that Iran has come to the table and it's all Iran's fault uh, for the current impasse. And that yeah, I believe, not course, to interrupt you, uh, I believe sure. it was what uh, Secretary of State um, Antony Blinken uh, accused Iran recently of not taking renewed negotiations to revive the nuclear deal uh, seriously. Um, and I wanted to get your thoughts on that, but uh, go ahead with what you were saying. I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, no, no, no. That's that's fine. Yeah, I think they really have said basically very clearly that if Iran doesn't reverse course and, and basically come back to some of the uh, agreements that had been struck previously, uh, then the U.S. was willing to entertain other options. And, you know, generally speaking, what other options are is, uh, you know, sanctions or, you know, bombing Iran's nuclear program, neither of which are, are particularly good options. The only real way to resolve this that's worked in the past is uh, diplomacy and, and lifting sanctions uh, to get Iran to roll back its nuclear program. Uh, but, uh, you know, if they see this as a dead end, that, that might be where we're headed uh, in the new year here. So with that comment that Blinken made accusing Iran of not taking the uh, renewed negotiations seriously. I mean, it, it always sort of surprises me when I hear things like that, because, I mean, looking at it from the perspective of uh, those who hold power in Iran right now, I mean, you know, in four years, the U.S. Uh, could have another, well, less than four years now, but uh, the point is the U.S. could have another uh, Republican that doesn't want us to have a, a deal with Iran when it comes to, uh, you know, the, the nuclear deal, doesn't want the JCPOA. So, you know, if we get another kind of Trump figure or Trump himself again as president, you know, it's it could be dead in the water again. So, I mean, on a, Iran's end, why should they not be skeptical of, uh, you know, these renewed negotiations? Yeah, I think it would be malpractice for them not to be, have some level of skepticism given the history here. Uh, you know, essentially Iran was in compliance with the deal uh, from when it was first implemented in 2016 until one year after Trump broke the agreement and snapped back to all sanctions. They actually continued to comply with the deal voluntarily without getting any benefit for a whole extra year. Uh, and the Trump administration at that time used that period to try to cut off all of Iran's oil sales. It designated the Revolutionary Guard Corps in Iran as a foreign terrorist organization uh, and really ratcheted up the pressure. So Iran, you know, kind of went out of its way to try to continue to comply with the agreement until its hands were essentially forced and they started to walk out of compliance with the agreement. Uh, so, you know, I think from the Iranian perspective and, you know, I, th I think Rouhani and Zarif are, they're kind of unique in that they uh, kind of understood the politics here in Washington, and they understood how to to get negotiations done. I think the the new crew that's come in with the RAC government, uh, you know, they want to be perceived as uh, you know tougher uh, than them, and they want to be perceived as more savvy negotiators and so forth. 
but they're much you know, more likely to get into trouble when, when putting forward diplomatic proposals and, and you know, easier to get out of step with, with Russia and China to say nothing of, of Europe and the West. Uh, so we'll see how that goes, but it's easier for them to sit back and say, oh, you don't think that, uh, you know, we're serious about negotiations. Well, why haven't you lifted any sanctions? Uh, you know, it, it goes both ways, uh, when it comes to the blame game. Could you talk a little bit about the effect of sanctions? Because, you know, I, I've talked about it before on the show, but I think it always needs reiterating, uh, when we're talking about the situation between the U S and Iran. Yeah, I mean, it's um, basically the world economy is entirely interconnected. And so what sanctions do uh, is say that, you know, certain trade with certain countries uh, can't happen. Uh, and there are different levels of sanctions that, that can take place. It can just be the U.S. saying we're not going to trade with you and essentially opting out of trade with the country. So we do that with Iran. We have primary sanctions in place. But then we go beyond that and we have extraterritorial or secondary sanctions. And what this does is say, not only are we not gonna trade with you, Iran, but no other country in the world can trade with you. And if they do trade with you, we are going to entirely disconnect them uh, from the US economy and impose massive fines on them. So, you know, like BNP Paribas had like a seven to $8 billion fine for doing business with Iran you know, several years back. Uh, these are the kind of fines that happen. And so what the rest of the world does is say, well, you know, Iran is a market of 83 million people. Uh, the U.S. is the biggest market in the world. While we'd like to do business with Iran, the U.S. financial system is much more valuable. So we're going to just enforce these sanctions and not going to do anything with Iran. And so you have a kind of de facto economic embargo of the country that extends, uh, you know, basically, you know, to definitely very strong in the West. There's very limited trade happening between Europe and Iran, almost none between the U.S. and Iran. Russia and China have much more ties. Uh, you know, regional countries have much more ties, but it has a profound hit on the economy. And, you know, if you think about some of the, the recessions that have happened in the United States and so forth, you know, Iran has been experiencing uh, recessions caused by a foreign country, uh, you know, pretty extensively for most of the period dating back to, you know, 2010, 2011 and so forth. So uh, it was really only a window between uh, 2015 and 2018 where those sanctions weren't in effect and the Iranian economy grew. Once the sanctions came back, uh, you know, massive recession, uh, high unemployment. The biggest thing that, that you know, I think the Iranians feel is the inflation. Uh, just the the cost of goods continues to skyrocket. Uh, you're talking about like 50% inflation at times, uh, which means your your money one month doesn't equal the same amount the next month. And to have the, like a foreign country doing that, I mean, it's it's definitely going to contribute to uh, you know radical sentiment and uh, you know opposition to to U.S. policies, uh, which happens a lot. Yeah, it's interesting too because my understanding is that the sanctions on Iran, the, these aren't like uh, some of the other sanctions we've done. Like we've done targeted sanctions uh, with Russia, where we target specific individuals for sanctions, right? Uh, the, mm -hmm. this is like a more general type of sanctions that really causes, you know, suffering for the Iranian people who, you know, it's, it's interesting to me. Uh, a lot of hawks will claim, oh, we want to see the Iranian people freed. And yet we're causing, you know, uh, chaos with these sanctions that hurt the Iranian people. 
Yeah, there's, um, you know, millions of people who have basically fallen out of the Iranian middle class uh, as these sanctions have been imposed, which, as you say, it's not just targeting individuals. I think you can make a, a good case for uh, targeting human rights violators in Iran, for example, um, you know, and elsewhere around the world. But when you say Iran can't sell oil, when you say no banks can connect with Iranian banks, uh, which is essentially what has happened. Uh, there's secondary sanctions on the nuclear issue and also terrorism sanctions that have been imposed. So double layers of sanctions on the entire Iranian financial sector. Well, you can't that's not narrowly targeted at anyone. That's the entire economy, which supports a population of 83 million. And so what happens is people bear the brunt of that. Millions of people fall out of the middle class, the prices of goods skyrockets. People have to worry about putting food on the table, uh, not you know, political organizing, if you will, or uh, you know, advocating for uh, you know, a more democratic system of government. So uh, our, our view is it's been really deleterious for the human rights situation and for uh, the, the running people who demand political rights and, and, and human rights as well. So with going back to this last round of Iran talks, it seems like we're at a point where uh, the two sides are, you know, now playing the public blame game with each other. Uh, and as Trita Parsi has put it, uh, there's little room for optimism when that's going on. Uh, but he also seems to say that, you know, unlike years past where uh, JCPOA collapse would put us on a path to war, there may be a third option that could exist today. Do you see any other options uh, in the way that uh, Trita is sort of implying there? You know, I think perhaps as a fallback option, there may be some sort of an interim arrangement that might cap Iran's most concerning nuclear activities for, a, uh, you know, perhaps some economic incentives, um, you know, some limited sanctions relief, something on the humanitarian front. But, you, you know, it's, it's very difficult. And that's, there's a kind of a reason why it's a fallback option. It's not as good as the JCPOA. Uh, we, it, we're having a hard enough time getting Iran back into that agreement, which has already been struck. You'd basically be starting from scratch uh, you know, to try to go after any sort of third arrangement. I do think there is, you know, uh, working on the side of an agreement is the fact that the alternatives are just so, so bad. Uh, you look at the, what a war over Iran's nuclear program would look like, uh, you know, probably make the Iraq war pale in comparison. It would be going to war with someone who's prepared for it, who has you know thousands of ballistic missiles that can hit US bases, uh, as we saw under the Trump administration, uh, that has proxy groups scattered across the region. Uh, you know, it's a it's a very capable adversary, and you know, to strike Iran's nuclear program, to level their facilities and so forth, it would not be a minor undertaking. It would be a, a major war, uh, and it would be something I think we'd regret for a very very long time. And it wouldn't even guarantee that Iran can't reconstitute its nuclear program. That it wouldn't just start from scratch, kick out international inspectors, and get a nuclear weapon eventually. So that's a, a very, very bad option. Uh, the U.S., unfortunately, I think, may feel um, like it has little choice other than to pursue that if things continue to go the direction they are. And ju just for clarification for my listeners, I guess Trita was talking about the I, I guess he's calling it the, the coma option where uh, mm -hmm. the JCPOA would, you know, basically be dead, but 
all the parties involved would sort of pretend that it's still alive just to avoid um, the crisis, which that, that sounds like if that's the best scenario, I mean, even that's not a, a great option. So it, it seems like going forward, there's, uh, you know, a lot to be pessimistic about. Yeah, I, I think, you know, he comes at that basically looking at the situation and saying, once you declare the Vienna talks as dead, um, then there's going to be intense pressure to, to ratchet up militarily uh, because Iran has progressed its nuclear program significantly. You know, when the JCPOA is in place, there's this technical term known breakout. Uh, Iran was a year away from breakout, which means if it made the decision to try to get a nuclear weapon by uranium enrichment, it would take them a year just to get the fissile material core for a bomb. So that's a long way off. And, you know, it depends on Iran making that decision to go after it. Now it's uh, it seems to be around a few weeks, uh, you know, maybe up to a month or something. So Iran's program is, is very uh, advanced. And as it continues to accumulate more uranium and rich at, at these pretty high levels of, of 60%, contra uh, a 3% allowed under the JCPOA, um, you know, Eventually, the U.S. may get to a decision point where they can't be assured that uh, Iran wouldn't get a, a nuclear weapon in the time that they could detect it and act. Uh, and so that's when you get into the scenario where uh, the U.S. will feel compelled to uh, strike Iran's nuclear program and, and try to buy more time. And it's also important to note here that part of that uh, path that would lead to you know, risking war is due to, uh, you know, sanctions alone, as you put it, I, I believe on uh, Twitter, uh, sanctions alone won't forestall uh, Iranian proliferation. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, what has been the historical pattern with respect to sanctions? It's we impose sanctions and Iran escalates its nuclear program. Sanctions are our leverage and Iran's leverage is expanding its nuclear program. That's how it sees it as, you know, being able to get rid of, of sanctions, being able to leverage, uh, you know, negotiations with the West. And, and you know, it all is, it's also hedging its bets. Uh, you know, if there's going to be a military confrontation and so forth, they want to be able to have the option uh, to have a nuclear weapon in the future. So they have the technical know-how. This is, you know, 1945 era uh, technology for the United States. They can uh, get a nuclear weapon. A lot of other similar states have done so. Uh, even North Korea, which is, you know, extremely isolated, uh, was able to put forward a, a very uh, robust nuclear program. Um, you know, they can go down that route. It's all about incentivizing Iran not to. And the, the main tool we have is sanctions. And you know, they know we can impose sanctions. They don't really know that we can lift them. Not, not for sure right now. Were there any positives that came out of the uh, Vienna talks, the latest round of talks with Iran, or is it all just cause for pessimism? Well, it's hard to know because we don't know exactly what the Iranians put forward. We know the Iranians put forward a proposal and we know that the U.S. didn't like that proposal, but we don't know whether it was a good proposal or, uh, you know, whether the, the U.S. Uh, framing of it is accurate. I think the positive is that uh, essentially we always knew that there was going to be uh, a tough opening bid uh, from the Iranians and the U.S. didn't walk away. Uh, so the fact that the process is continuing, uh, that they're likely to reconvene in Vienna later this week, 
I think is a big positive. Uh, you know, it's a, <laughs> the, the window isn't closed yet. Uh, it may be getting uh, a little narrower, but there's still room to strike this deal. Uh, and what's what's needed is the same thing that's been needed all along, is more flexibility, both from the U.S. and from Iran. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because I, I think NIAC action statement on the Vienna talks is uh, noting in a way that I didn't even consider because it, it it's so obvious, but a lot of people should think about it is, you know, at least we're not starting from... Uh, zero you know we're not starting from scratch with with these negotiations and you know iran is willing to discuss uh restoring its nuclear commitments so i mean we're already a step ahead in some ways yeah you know there there was a text that was basically all but finalized in june uh before the iranian elections and you know there were a few difficult to uh finalize things like advanced centrifuges what does iran do uh, with these new machines that it's brought online. Um, but they were very achievable, I think. Uh, you know, it was probably the hardest work left, but, you know, they'd gotten most of the way to the finish line. Mm -hmm. And, you know, frankly, at the end of the day, this this agreement is what it is. It's 150 pages, and there's only so many ways you can uh, observe it uh, if you're both, you know, in Iran or, or in the U.S. So uh, really... If there's will there, it can be done. It's a little bit unclear, you know, what needs to be done to reach the finish line. I've heard a lot of talk about technical guarantees that you guarantee a certain amount of uh, trade or that, you know, at least the, the, the confirm that the sanctions are lifted uh, as a way to bridge the gap. But uh, like you said earlier, Iran uh, has no guarantees that this agreement will last more than three years. Uh, so how do you incentivize Iran to get back into an agreement and uh, frankly risk its economy uh, to a major shock of sanctions reimposition once again? Um, that's, I think, the, the challenge for the US side. I think for the Iranian side, it's how do you figure out how to <laughs> dial back your uh, opening bid uh, sufficiently while still meeting your bottom line so that this process continues and at the end of the day, the sanctions can be lifted and the, the deal can be restored. So I know this is uh, a bit of a putting you on the spot question, but what would greater flexibility from both Washington and Tehran potentially look like? What could both parties be more flexible with? Yeah, for the U.S., I think offers of, of sanctions lifting, you've got to make that process much more real for the Iranian side. One of the things that we've been you know, hammering home, uh, you know, for a long time here is that the U.S. frankly should have done a lot more up front uh, in terms of showing goodwill. Uh, it could have um, allowed Iran access to some of its reserves abroad to, to buy vaccines, uh, you know, to, to combat COVID-19 at home. Uh, and basically, none of that was forthcoming. The, the Biden administration uh, did not pursue those proposals. It didn't set up the waiving of sanctions. It didn't revoke Trump's order withdrawing from the deal. There are a whole host of things that could have bought goodwill at the negotiating table that the Biden administration hasn't pursued. Um, and, you know, I think that leads to the current level of distrust right now that, you know, frankly, the U.S. has to put those things on the table. They have to show goodwill. They have to, you know, put forward creative ideas, put forward licensing to allow companies to go back into Iran. That'll be more durable than, uh, you know, just re-entering the agreement. Um, and I'm sorry, was there a question on the Iranian side as well? Greater flexibility. How can Tehran be more 
flexible while also accommodating the, the sort of political realities there. Yeah, well, I think that based on the reaction, uh, apparently it was not limited to the U.S., uh, they got to walk back their opening bid a little bit here uh, and work a little bit more closely off uh, the draft that the Rouhani administration had worked on in the prior six rounds, uh, which... Uh, you know, Foreign Minister Zarif, uh, then Foreign Minister Zarif actually presented a report to the parliament over the summer in Iran, and he laid out all of the things that he would have gotten if uh, the Supreme Leader signed off on getting back in the deal. And it was pretty extensive. It was a lot of the Trump era sanctions. So if you think about domestic politics here, uh, the Raisi government has a kind of tough job to do in that the deal is already kind of out there publicly. How are they going to sell themselves as more capable negotiators than the last crew. Uh, so they need something else, right? <laughs> but they, you know, they, they can't just pick up the Rouhani administration's work and claim it as, as its own, but you know, they can't discard it entirely. So that's, I think, the, the trap that they're in a little bit. Yeah, it's such a, a strange topic for me in a way, um, this return to the JCPOA, because it seems like both parties ultimately would benefit from this. You know. Uh, with uh, Iran, I mean, I, I feel like uh, this is a way to get rid of the sanctions. Uh, potentially, that could be part of the deal. With the U.S., I mean, the U.S. can't be sure that this will ever be on the table again. You know, this may be our last chance to get a deal done with Iran. We don't know that they'll negotiate again. So for me, it seems like a slam dunk that both sides need to come to an agreement. I, I guess it's just a matter of whether we'll get there or not. Yeah. I mean, I think you should never underestimate the weight of history and the, the actual difficulty of this and, and overcoming the distrust of, uh, you know, 40 plus years. I think you know, I was speaking with uh, Ambassador Limbert uh, recently, who was one of the, the hostages in 1979. And he was basically saying, like, it was amazing that they got the deal done in 2015. Uh, that, you know, overcoming that weight of history to, to get to the agreement was really remarkable. And he, you know, overcame his expectations. But well, you could you even know, go back further, right? You know, 1953 mm -hmm. and the, the whole coup in, in Iran, Operation Ajax. So, I mean, yeah. Yeah, so you got the the coup, you've got uh, the Iran hostage crisis, you've got U.S. support for Saddam Hussein, uh, access of evil speech. There's a whole lot of history that goes into uh, U.S.-Iran relations, and you know I think the the net effect of that is that a lot of uh, you know policymakers on each side have spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to stick it to the other side, and so when you get to the negotiating table, things are much more complicated and difficult to uh, <laughs> to do. Uh, than, than meets the eye. And, and really, domestic politics is a, a huge, huge factor, uh, both in Iran's, you know, not a, not a unitary actor. It's, uh, it's got its own politics. Um, and, and in the U.S., where there's, uh, you know, pretty fierce opposition to, to striking a deal with Iran, particularly in the Republican Party, but uh, certain aspects of the Democratic Party, too. Do you think that's part of the problem is just... Um... I guess, you know, politicians always face this issue of they want to appear to be, uh, you know, oh, we're tough, you know, we're not soft on anything, which that doesn't always bode well for um, diplomacy, right? Yeah, it's usually quite bad. Uh, I think it's absolutely been the case. I mean, you look at the, the Biden administration, I think the fact that they're pursuing a domestic heavy agenda with, um, you know, the 
the rescue package earlier in the year and then build back better with this 50-50 Senate. Um, you know, I, I think it, it, it caused them to uh, not focus uh, particularly heavily on foreign policy, particularly early, and then to kind of push the, the negotiations back a little bit um, and uh, really kind of pursue a passive approach to these negotiations where we're going to come to this agreement on how to get back into this deal that's already been negotiated instead of coming in and being like, all right, we violated the deal, the sanctions are lifted. Uh, you know, I think that we saw a, a, a much different approach when it came to getting back into Paris Climate Accord. Uh, they just came back in. Uh, you know, you, you, that same instinct was not replicated on the Iran front. Uh, and it was a much more uh, kind of laborious, multilateral, indirect negotiation approach to reviving the deal, which still could have worked. Uh, it just wasn't as uh, aggressive and, uh, you know, <laughs> perhaps not as fruitful either. When you mentioned the weight of history, and I, I, it completely slipped, and I don't know how it slipped uh, to mention this, but uh, the assassination of Soleimani, um, mm -hmm. what role do you think this has played in maybe stalling us from, from getting uh, a new deal through? Yeah, you know, it's a, a huge factor. So if you look into started start the clock on 2019 like right before the pandemic hit for everybody we, we were on the precipice of a war with iran because trump had assassinated qasem soleimani uh, this uh, famed iranian general uh, who led a lot of the the campaign uh, to roll back isis in iraq and, and syria and so forth uh, you know uh, obviously, like, you know, had a lot of, you know, his hand in, in you know, the Shia militia attacks on U.S. troops and uh, during the uh, Iraq war and so forth. But, uh, you know, here was a guy who's pretty revered in, you know, Iran security circles and uh, was very close to the supreme leader um, by some polling, you know, which you have to kind of take with a grain of salt because it's in an authoritarian country, but the polling said he was one of the most popular political figures, political military figures in the Islamic Republic uh, at the time of his death. And so uh, that prompted a, a serious Iranian response. They, they fired a bunch of missiles at US bases in Iraq. Um, there's a, um, you know, the accounts of that attack, Trump at the time, he kind of dialed it down because he didn't want a war with Iran at that time. He thought, I assume he thought it would be pretty bad politics. He said, you know, some, some guys had some, some headaches and so forth, but nothing to worry about. People were sheltering in bases and getting knocked out by the vibrations of the missile attacks and later diagnosed with traumatic brain injuries after the fact. Like it was not uh, an easy thing for these uh, soldiers to sit through, uh, and you know the the risks that one of them got killed and and Trump would have had to respond. Like we we very very narrowly avoided a war that time, uh, and then you know kind of the sabotage operations uh, against Iran continue after that. We walk back from the brink, but you know the slow burn of the nuclear crisis continues. Uh, so in December, I mentioned the assassination of Mohsen Fakhrizadeh by. Um, presumably Israel with a, a AI operated machine gun. Um, that prompted a lot of Iran's nuclear escalation. Then one week after the nuclear talks had resumed in April of this year under the Biden administration, uh, the Natanz enrichment facility uh, in Iran uh, has an explosion. Power gets knocked out. A bunch of Iran's uh, first generation centrifuges get knocked out. Um, and so this is 
again, you know, what, what transpires when Iran, uh, you know, shows good faith and returns to negotiations, well, they get attacked. And I think that really put a damper on the possibility of progress under the Rouhani administration. Uh, now, there's another sabotage attack that also <laughs> in June uh, triggered some, some nuclear retaliation from Iran. Uh, there's a, kind of a vague incident. Uh, Iran reported that they had intercepted an enemy drone uh, outside of its centrifuge production facility at Karaj. Uh, and there weren't, weren't a lot of details. Only months later did we find out that that attack actually knocked out an IAEA monitoring camera. Uh, in the facility and has led to this protracted crisis where the IAEA is trying to get access to this facility at Garage. Well, you know, Israel blew up the place with a drone and, uh, you know, knocked out a camera and so forth. And that provoked, you know, this, this longstanding IAEA standoff on that specific issue. There are other issues too on IAEA access, but you see this like long, you know, campaign of subterfuge against Iran that's been happening and continuing even as the Biden administration tries to get Iran back into the deal. And that really undermines, you know, Iran's instinct that the U.S. wants a deal. Even if it was Israel leading all these operations, at least after Soleimani, you know, it's it's kind of hard for, for Iran to distinguish who's behind those attacks. Is it Israel? Is the U.S. involved? Um, it's it, It's got to be un, unclear to them. So that leads into the last thing I wanted to touch upon. I want to talk about U.S. relations to other countries and how that may be affecting the attempts to get a new Iran deal. And I specifically want to talk about Saudi Arabia and Israel, Israel even more so because they're posturing right now. I'm seeing news reports that, you know, Defense Minister Benny Gantz and uh, the chief of the Mossad, David Barnes, are saying, you know, we're going to pressure the U.S. to attack Iran. That's in the Jerusalem Post. And Israel is preparing for a possible war against Iran. It seems like there's a lot of hawkish posturing right now on Israel's side. So what's Israel's role in uh, what may happen with the Vienna talks? And also, do you think Saudi Arabia has any is a factor in any of this as well? What's interesting is there are kind of two dynamics at play that I see, particularly with respect to Israel, is you know, one, you, you kind of have the political leadership uh, basically picking up where Bibi Netanyahu left off in his long campaign against the nuclear deal and against the U.S. striking agreement that rolls back Iran's nuclear program, which is, you know, good for Israel, frankly. Um, and then you have the real, real quick. I wanted to mention uh -huh. something since you said that I, I just pulled up an article, uh, Responsible Statecraft, and it's titled Top Israeli Military Officials Say. Trump's Iran deal exit was a, uh, quote, mistake and that it was bad for Israel. So I think it is worth noting there are these voices even within Israel that are saying we, we shouldn't be trying to sabotage this. That's exactly right. And that was actually going to be my next point is you have all of these people coming out of the woodwork. And uh, now that Netanyahu's gone and saying, by the way, he really screwed us, uh, you know, royally so. Uh, in pushing Trump to exit the deal uh, and now leading to the situation where it is today, which also, by the way, includes those sabotage attacks I was referring to. Um, <laughs> you know, the Iran wasn't on 60% enrichment. They were, they were at like 3% and we could have guaranteed that until uh, 2030 
at least that was in the bank, you know, as long as everyone complies with the deal, it's going to be all very easily verifiable and so forth. And we totally screwed that up. Uh, so, you know, now a lot of people are saying, hey, <laughs> JCPOA was actually a pretty good deal, bought us a good deal of security. You also have the GCC uh, coming out, the, the Gulf Cooperation Council issued a statement with the U.S. where they said uh, returning to the, the JCPOA would be a, a good thing, uh, good for regional security. That is a big difference from the tone that a lot of the, the GCC members struck under the Trump administration, where they were very much uh, cheering on uh, the maximum pressure campaign against Iran. I think what they realized is oh, the U.S. actually doesn't necessarily want to fight a war with Iran on our behalf. Uh, and, you know, when Iran hit back uh, with a, a drone strike on a, the, the Saudi Arabian oil facilities, um, I believe that was in uh, 2019 as well, um, you know, all of a sudden they realized, well, the U.S. isn't actually going to back us up in a fight against Iran. And, you know, the U.S. may kind of come and go in the region, but Iran's going to be there for <laughs> a very long time. So, uh, there's actually been kind of a movement since that time, but particularly since the Biden administration has come into office to try to patch things up uh, across the region. And a lot of, you know, uh, multilateral negotiations happening, including in Baghdad, uh, to try to lower the temperature and so forth. You actually have the uh, United Arab Emirates, the UAE National Security Advisor in Tehran right now, which is very interesting because they've been were uh, previously on the maximum pressure bandwagon, now hedging their bets a little bit. So, um, you know, as these nuclear talks are unfolding, there's a lot happening in the region. Um, you know, Israel, I think, certainly ratcheting up uh, the pressure. Uh, but one of the, the interesting quotes that came out was, uh, you know, Israel security officials pressing the Biden administration for more pressure. And they're basically saying, like, what do you want from us? Like, you pushed us into this crisis. Uh, you know, we're trying to rectify the damage. So please hang tight for a little bit while, while we figure this out. So last thing I, I wanted to ask you was, um, you know, I, I know we mentioned that the Vienna talks, people are saying this doesn't look good so far. Uh, it seems like all parties are, you know, not being that cooperative or playing blame games. Uh, at the same time, though, do you think people may be being too panicky about that because it seems like maybe everyone is posturing right now just to like I said earlier to appear tough to their constituents so do you think that there's a lot of posturing going on and that maybe uh, it will calm down I think that's certainly the hope and you know kind of our expectations reading the tea leaves heading into the seventh round was well, Rice is going to come in with a um, pretty tough posture here in the opening round, but they may walk it back after. The, the fact that they're still talking about reviving the JCPOA, uh, the fact that, uh, frankly, you know, there's only one path to, to sanctions relief at the end of the day, and, and Rice wants to benefit from, uh, you know, a, an improving economy and so forth, I think all kind of augur the possibility that uh, a deal can still be made, even though the, the hour is getting late by by some metrics and so forth. But even if that's the case, they still have to reach the finish line. They have to, you know, do this thing that's very difficult to do with the weight of history, which is, you know, actually strike uh, an agreement with uh, the United States of America, which is easier said than done. It's only been done with one administration in Iran, uh, you know, here on the nuclear file, and uh, that was a, a uniquely 
an administration that was uniquely predisposed to engage the United States and seek sanctions relief. I think the Raisi administration wants sanctions relief, but it's not at the end of the day, a, 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 you know, a make or break thing for them. Uh, they're uh, much more inclined to uh, support kind of a resistance economy as uh, the Supreme Leader has uh, advocated for a long time. And, uh, you know, not to, to see sanctions relief as the end all be all when it comes to the Iranian government's position. They feel that they have leverage, that they, uh, you know, have options, uh, can bank more on China and Russia than the West, and that that might be a better strategic position for them. So even though the intent may be to resuscitate the JCPOA, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. Um, you know, for the U.S., that means... Now's the time to put whatever offers you have on the table to try to get Iran back into the deal. On the Iranian side, I think they need a, a little bit of realism and, and be able to pick up where the Rouhani administration left off as well. So in closing, is there anything that I didn't mention that you think is worth sort of drawing out? Because I mean, for me, I'm really hoping we get a new Iran deal. I think that, well, I, I'll just be honest. I, I think that what Trump did was a catastrophic, I, I don't even know if it was a miscalculation. I just think it was a, a really horrible decision. I, I do not understand these people like John Bolton that are so hawkish on Iran. And, uh, you know, I, I think we have a lot of risks going forward. And like you said, Iran can now possibly rely on China and Russia more. So in a way, I, I think the U.S. has lost its leverage in this in some ways. Yeah, the U.S. doesn't really have a lot of leverage here. And I think uh, sanctions lifting is the real key thing. You think about pressure. Iran has weathered a lot of sanctions. There's only so many times you can circle back to, to really isolate the Iranian economy. So, you know, frankly, what happened in 2015 when the nuclear deal got struck the first time? We put credible offers of sanctions relief on the table and uh, you know backed up those commitments by following through now iran really distrusts that we're ever going to deliver uh you know much less uh you know offer uh something more instead of just constantly tightening the vice of sanctions so uh it's you know kind of predictable like when trump exited the deal that we were going to be headed for an impasse like this uh i think the timing has been interesting this dragged out into a, a subsequent administration but biden's got to clean up the mess here so uh we, I, I think we all hope that he can do it and, and they can reach the finish line well thank you again ryan costello for coming on parallax views how can my listeners keep up with your work and the work of others at the national iranian american council thanks so much for having me you can, uh, you know, go to niacouncil.org, N-I-A council.org, uh, you know, sign up for our newsletter, uh, follow us on Twitter at Naya Council. I'm at Rye Costello, uh, R-Y-E Costello on Twitter. Uh, we try to keep up with the news and, uh, you know, do uh, rapid responses to everything. But uh, yeah, following the diplomatic talks, uh, immigration issues for the Iranian American community, civil rights, it's all at NIAC. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I'm recording this outro in the oh, late hours of the night, so I need to get this out there quickly. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ryan Costello and that, like me, you are holding out hope 
for a revived deal with Iran. As always, if you support the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There is a one, five, ten, fifteen, and a hundred dollar tier. A monthly donation to any of those tiers will help this show greatly. It is you, the listener, as well as the few great sponsors we have on Parallax Views that keep this program possible. And of course, at the $10 and $15 tiers, you get a producer's credit shout-out. So, producer's credit shout-outs to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, and Jeffrey. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax you as well, consider joining those listeners in supporting me at the $10 tier or above. And if you really, really want to help me out, then join uh, the $100 tier. You'll also get a producer's credit for that as well, uh, as well as all the other benefits. But uh, I do not expect uh, many people to join that tier. Although if you uh, really want to help the show, do it. So again, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say, don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that. Uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff. It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.